I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson. Our guest today is one of Britain's most successful businessmen, the chairman of the online supermarket Ocado and the fashion retailer Fatface. He's known for his focus on the customer, who he describes as the master of the universe. He turned around a struggling Marks and Spencer as chief executive and chairman, having started as a graduate trainee there in menswear. He took on and beat Sir Philip Green after a high-profile takeover battle and has been awarded a knighthood and a peerage. He is Stuart Rose, Lord Rose, and we went to see him at home in West London. So you had the virus, you did, didn't you? I had the virus in early March. I was an early adopter, although I suspect <laughs> the virus has been around much longer than people think. In fact, I think it's been around in even in the UK since, since pre-Christmas last year. Uh, yes, it wasn't a pleasant experience, uh, 10 days, but I knew immediately that I had the virus because it wasn't an illness like I'd ever had before. Uh, luckily, my wife and I both got it on the same day and we both pretty well recovered on the same day. But it wasn't so much the illness, which was unpleasant. It was the amount of time it took um, to recover fully after mm. it. So it was about six weeks. Gosh. And you're chairman of Ocado, so did you always get the slot that you wanted throughout? I'm, I'm very happy to say that I never called any favours. I use Ocado and I've got a cottage in the country and they come to us whenever we want them, but they never know that I'm the chairman because it is on an algorithm. Uh, sometimes the, the van man comes and I says, where have you come from? And he said, well, how do you know which route I might have done? I said, well, I just have, you know, I'm interested in Ocado. So, no, I don't get any preferential treatment. I never asked for any preferential treatment. In fact, during the actual period, which was very difficult because there was a huge demand from people who needed our services, um, we didn't have a delivery for about three or four weeks. Oh, really? Did you get people ringing out asking for... I got hundreds of emails, uh, some of which were quite rude, uh, some of which were very uh, sort of desperately pleading for people to have help, quite, quite, and some people who were basically trying it on. Uh, but that's what happens if you run a large business, you get the good, the bad and the ugly. started out, didn't you, folding jumpers in M&S? I started off sweeping a warehouse in Marks & Spencer mm. in Oxford in 1971. Uh, I only did it for a week, but I did have the broom and I did keep a very clean warehouse. <laughs> You've always done your best every level. Well, there's another thing that I say to people uh, in business. And, you know, first of all, you know, we're all going to work for a long time, hopefully. And you should look at your career as a sort of, you know, as a journey of maybe 20, 30, 40 years. As, as we get older now, people are going to have to work longer anyway. And there are so many people in such a rush. And yes, I, I, I didn't quite know. I think, first of all, I was grateful to have a job. And I wanted to show my gratitude. And it sounds very simplistic, but I wanted to show my gratitude for giving me a job by doing a job as well as I could. Uh, now you have a rather extraordinary life. 
with uh, an amazing house. But you did start off in a caravan, didn't you, in your first four years in Warwickshire? I'll show you a photograph in a minute of my caravan and my sister and I standing outside my caravan in Washington. Yes, I, I can't say it was defining, a, a defining moment in my life, but I was always very conscious. Uh, and I should say at this point is I had two very loving parents. I had two very ambitious parents who were foiled all their life. Their ambitions were foiled. Uh, but I had two parents who I was always conscious from a very early age, had to scrimp and save to which every penny was, was really important. Uh, and my father died last year, and I'm reading some of his papers, and I came across a letter he wrote to my mother. It must have been in about 19, uh, 1948 or 49. Now, I'd just been born, so it was 49. And uh, he left the REF. he just graduated from university. It had taken him longer than he thought he had to go around because I don't think he got his degree the first time round. He couldn't get a job where he was living in the south of England in Hailing Island in a prefab. And he took a job in rugby and he's writing to my mother, uh, must be at the weekend, saying, I'm so looking forward to seeing you uh, and don't be cross with me, but I've been to the pictures twice this week. But the reason I've been to the pictures is that it's warm in the cinema because my flat is so cold, my room, lodging room is so cold, and I'm saving the coal allowance for Friday, Saturday and Sunday when you come up with the children. Oh, goodness. So what was the caravan like? That must have been pretty cold. Cold. Yeah. Well, I don't have that. Do you remember it? I remember it very well. I remember it for funny reasons. I mean, obviously it had an outside loo. We did not have a lavatory. My father dug an Elson lavatory out in a ditch at the back. Uh, I remember as he was digging it, he found a plastic toy. I think it was plastic or it may have been a metal dinky toy. And I remember him repairing it with great, great care. And I had it as a birthday present. Really? (sighs) Gosh. And did you have enough to eat then, or was it still very difficult? Oh, no, 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 no. We, ne- we were never short of food. We were never short of clothing. We were never short of warmth. I mean, it was a cold the caravan, very paper thin, it? but it had a, a wood stove in it, I think, or a little coal stove. So we, no, I was very, you know, my parents were very, very caring and loving parents. They were just tough. It was tough times. And, you know, today many people live tough lives, we are seeing with this current crisis. You know, how many people are on the borderline? So it's not, it's not mm. new. Mm. Your parents were both immigrants, weren't they? Because I think your father was born in China and he was the son of... My father got very cross with me. Army officer. 20-odd years ago when I, in an article, described my parents as having an immigrant mentality. In fact, Mm. he picked up the phone and he he swore at me and told me that I really didn't understand my background. But what I meant to say was, of course, that this country has always taken in people from whatever part of the world over centuries and that my parents were refugees, effectively. My father was brought here as a refugee. He was Russian by birth and he was adopted by a Quaker lady, a single Quaker lady who said she would look after him when the war came. Uh, and my mother uh, came from a difficult background in Egypt and she was repatriated here when she was about 12 or 13. So, yes, and neither of them have ever been to the UK before. Right. So, you know, one arrives at 13 or 14, one arrives at 14 or 15, and it must have been very strange. So what do they not like about the idea of being immigrants? Then? I think that... I don't know, really. I don't think... There was certainly nothing racist in it, or there was certainly mm. nothing... I think it was just that they wanted... I think... Uh, uh, thinking about it, and you asked the question and nobody has before, I think that they wanted to feel fully assimilated. We're British. Right. We gave up being foreign the day we arrived here. My mm. father was more proud of anything than his British passport. Mm. You know, I've got his Russian passport and I've got his naturalisation documents and I've got his British passport from 1938. My mother came here to England. England is my home. Yes. We are English. 
as it happens, my mother was part Greek and part Scottish, and my father was absolutely not English at all. So what did you mean um, but they were proud. An, what did you mean by an immigrant mentality? Well, I think it was because I, I, my, what I meant was is that they wanted, and this is a, a credit to them, they wanted us as children to, to get the very best that they hadn't had. So when I used that term, I used it at the time that I was chief executive of um, Booker. It must have been back in 1988, 1999 in, in the article. Uh, because I was then running Booker, which was supplying a lot of corner stores, and you know, 20 or 30,000 of our customers ran corner shops, and many of the corner shops in the UK very successfully are run by immigrants, whether they're immigrants who come from Pakistan or Bangladesh or India, or indeed from East Africa, and they are family businesses run by people who work literally from four or five in the morning till midnight at night, and their sole role, they think, is to make sure that the next generation, you know, has a better time than they do. And I remember going around many of the stores and visiting saying, well, how are we doing and what can we do at Booker to help you? And they're saying, you know, we're doing well, thank you very much indeed. And then they'd want to talk, talk about their children. And you'd be amazed every time, oh, my son's a doctor, my daughter's doing, uh, my daughter's doing chemistry, you know, my other son wants to become a lawyer. It was always wanting to push the next generation. And that's what I meant by my parents having an immigrant mentality. Yes. They wanted me to be a doctor. No, yeah. Was, yeah. It didn't happen. Did they give you an extraordinary work ethic as well? Were they always working? Um, I don't know if they get... Yes, I think from my father. My father had a very difficult life uh, for lots of reasons, but I was always very conscious that he never stopped working, but he never got a reward for it in the sense that he never seemed to get promoted. He never seemed to be any financially better off and I think it must have been an immense frustration of course I've now got his diaries and I'm reading through them diligently and he was very frustrated particularly the last 30-40 years of his life. And he then got posted to Tanzania didn't he with the civil service job. How, that must have been rather extraordinary. Well, you, get, uh, you were asking about us being very young. I mean, remember, my father was one of millions of people who fought during the war, and he came out in sort of 47, and there were lots of people who had been sort of queuing up to get into the education system, late to university or whatever else. Then in 1948, 49, 50, a whole pile of people were looking for jobs, and the economy here was obviously suffering post-war, and they found it very difficult. And I think then having both come from abroad, you know, whether it was climate, whether it was a different lifestyle, whether life was cheaper, life was better, feel, felt better. You know, England, I suspect, in 1947, which was the coldest winter for, what, 100 years, when you're living in a caravan, must have felt pretty miserable. Yes. And um, they wanted to break out. Mm. And I think my father saw, and I've got some correspondence showing that my father had applied for job A, job B, job C in the UK, and he'd had rejection A, rejection B, rejection C. And I think they must have had a family conference and sort of said, you know, what are we going to do? My father, my mother had relatives in, um, in Egypt, so there must have been a call there. And uh, I think my father saw an advert for the overseas civil service uh, uh, to go and work as a... Um, clerical officer I think in East Africa and the next thing is we are in an ambulance only in an ambulance because my sister caught measles uh, <laughs> uh, before we were going to the Tilbury to get on the ship to go to Africa 
And I remember going down with the bell ringing and my sister was put in quarantine at the back of the boat for three <laughs> weeks until we got to Malta. And we were on this boat, and I'll, I'll show you a picture later of this boat, and suddenly uh, you're in sparkling seas, and you're in sparkling, uh, you know, the, 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 the sky is blue and the grass is green and the sea's warm, and you're in a bungalow uh, in Africa. and No it, need for central heating. <laughs> it, no need for central heating. It's like paradise. Mm. And that's how I, you know, I remember from four or five till I was 12. And was it the food and the smells, and what was it that really caught your imagination about it? Well, it was uh, you, know, you didn't know what, the, what you didn't know what to expect because you'd obviously never experienced it before. But I mean, it was just magical. It was, you know, I used to get up. The sun would always be up by six. We'd go to school by seven thirty, uh, and we'd finish school by one o'clock. Never did school in the afternoon. And I'd spend the afternoon on the beach, uh, and I had loads of friends. And you know, you didn't have to put a winter sweater on. You didn't have to worry about anything. We were ran free. I mean, mm. it really was quite quite blissful, and we led a comfortable life. Uh, and my father, uh, I think, was enjoying his work at that time. His relationship with my mother was good at the time. I've got a photograph, actually, of my father um, sitting there. He did, uh, in the evenings, he used to run the local broadcasting service. So he used to, you know, have his turntable and he used to do interview people and whatever else. <laughs> got a rather uh. splen- splendid photograph of him doing it, which must have been, what, 1956 or 58. So why did they come back to England? Then that must have been a real shock. Well, I think it was a sacrifice. Well, two mm. things. Um, the first thing is, of course... Uh, all of the countries that were part of the old um, British Empire, British Commonwealth, were getting independence. So Kenya had had independence. Tanzania became independent in '62. My father knew that was going to happen because by that time he was working centrally down in Dar es Salaam, the, the local capital. And I remember conversations. We weren't involved in them, but you know, your parents were talking about what shall we do. And there was talk about going to Rhodesia. There was talk about going to South Africa. There was talk about going to Australia. Uh, and I think actually my mother probably drove it and against her will, against her better judgment for herself, I, it was a sacrifice, it was what are we going to do with the children? They need to get an education. And I remember particularly it was uh, Stuart, it was not my sister because they decided they were going to send me to boarding school. Uh, my father clearly couldn't afford it and they couldn't afford to send both so they made the choice to send me and not my sister. Why didn't they send the sister and not me? Is she ever forgiven? Grossly unfair. Well, I think it's actually... um, I think my sister has suffered as a result because I think she's a very intelligent woman. She would probably have done very well, but she didn't get the chance. Mm. Uh, And my mother clearly didn't want to come back to England, but they came back because we don't want to send the children to boarding school. Many kids used to go on the plane and come back, you know, three months later or even a year later because you didn't come out and it wasn't like today where there was cheap travel. Um, and they decided, right, we'll go back to England and, and make the best. So I think it was a big, big um, wrench for them. It was, um, I mean, they should have gone to South Africa. They should have gone to Rhodesia. They should have gone to Australia. They were tropical people. Mm-hmm. But so it, didn't. it was all given up for you then, really? Yes. Which is, that's quite a hard act. It is. It's quite hard now. I, now that I'm reading my father's papers, I, re- I, re- I really respect the sacrifices that my parents made for me. Uh, and for us, but particularly for me. My mother had a lot of faith in me, uh, and I think my father did, um, but they did it. So it's about going back to my point about the immigrant mentality. Mm. They did it because that's what they felt they should do for their children. They had had a tough time. Well, let's make sure that our children have a less tough time. Maybe we'll make their life better. And what were they like as parents? Were they very loving or were they quite remote and 
aspirational? I've got two sort of recollections of my parents. Uh, incredibly loving um, parents. Right the way through till I was about 12. I mean, I, I remember six or seven sitting on my dad's knee. My father reading, you know, books to me. And he'd read me Robinson Crusoe. He'd read The Last of the Mohicans, uh, you know, teaching us to, making us sit down in the evening and do uh, calligraphy uh, and trying to interest me in music uh, and all sorts of things. Uh, and, and my mother was incredibly loving in the same way. Um, but the, 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 I think probably the big pivotal point was coming back to the UK. It was a big wrench. It's clearly when they got here, they were not happy. Mm. Uh, my father had to make the best of the fist. You know, he'd made a decision to come back. My mother clearly hated it. Uh, we were living at the time in a series of rented houses. I mean, you know, bless him, my dad, who died last year, never owned a house. Right. Lived in rented accommodation till the day he died. Um, so it was always sort of slightly hand to mouth. It was always very difficult. Um, we first of all went to Yorkshire for a while, then we went up to Essex. My father, by that time, was working in London. He was commuting every day, so my mum didn't see much of him. My sister was at home with my mum. They then packed me off to school. So the big seminal point for me is at the age of 12, I can't remember it was, must have been 12 or 13, I suddenly ended up in this pretty grey, uh, cold boarding mm. school in York, that was my hideous? father had been to, and I thought, how did this happen? <laughs> and I think that was probably the most important thing in my life. I suddenly woke up and thought, well, you're on your own now. Right. And, and sadly, whether it was money, and I suspect there were other things that, well, I know there were now, but my father never visited me ever during term time. And other kids did. I mean, you didn't get the axiats like you get today, where the kids go home every weekend or, you know, they've got their friends. You, we had half term. So it went from, I don't know, September to late October. And then it was Christmas. So I remember going up on the electric train from King's Cross on my own, age 13, with my trunk. And I remember coming back on the 22nd of December when I was let out and I never saw my parents in between time. So were you miserable? Yeah, pretty, pretty mm. miserable for the did first year. Did you feel abandoned then? Or did you well, I think that's the last point about what my parents were like. I, I, I think that... My parents were incredibly loving. It must have been quite... I know my mother did suffer. My father was rather more stoical about it, but he, for, his, for the reasons in his background, you know, he'd had a tough life. He had no mother and no father. He suddenly came to England at 13, and I think he probably thought, well, if I did it, I'm going around halfway around the world, what's the matter with him? Mm. You know, of course he can do it. So I don't think we, we never... I don't, he never articulated to me. We never had the discussion about it. But I never saw him during term time. And in fact, I don't think he... In the whole time I was at school, between 1963 and 68, I don't think I received more than two or three letters from him. And what about your mother? Did she write or visit? Or she wrote me a letter, but she, 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 I'd, I'd ring up on the old press button, A, eh? Uh, you know, for a couple of minutes, say, so you all right? Yes, I'm all right. Thank you. Everything all right? Yes, darling. And she came up sometimes at half term for overnight um, and stayed. But it was always, I always remember there, it was quite sad because, you know, we'd be in some hotel, you know, they chucked you out at 10 o'clock after breakfast, they didn't want you. You'd be wandering around cold and damp York all day trying to look interested, go and have a cup of coffee, you know, talk about what you wear or where you're doing, and then you put your mum back on the train again. So mm. It was rather strange. And she wanted you to be a doctor, didn't she? I think she want well. She wanted me to be successful, and that then sort of goes back slightly to your relationship, her relationship with my father. My father was a hugely complicated man, or maybe actually he was hugely uncomplicated. But everything he seemed to touch, you know, never turned to gold. Mm. 
uh, but incredibly hardworking, very diligent, you know, took on a lot of extracurricular stuff. You know, he was you know, a governor of this and a governor of that, but he was always trying to make a contribution. And I think he, it was frustrating because he wasn't bringing the bread home. And I think it was frustrating because he was frustrated. My mother knew he was frustrated. And I think probably in truth, my mother was frustrated with him. So yes. a lot of frustration. Uh, mm. <laughs> um, so she wanted something different for you. So she wanted something different for me. Yeah. And do you think that was a profession or...? Well, it's the immigrant mentality point again. A profession was the aspirational thing, you know. It, mm. it, it's uh, At the time, we were a very hierarchical society. I mean, you could argue we're still quite a hierarchical society today, but the only way forward seemed to me where you had to get a profession. You had to be a doctor or a dentist or a lawyer. And because there was distantly, I'm not so sure how much it was in reality and wasn't perhaps in my mother's imagination, but there were doctors in the family. <laughs> Stuart will be a doctor. And I remember meeting... You know, my parents' friends, and you know, it was quite clearly said when I was eight or nine, well, Stuart's going to be a doctor. So right. I didn't have a chance to open my mouth. <laughs> Did you think about it? Do you... I pursued it. I mean, mm. I, I, I made lots of mistakes in my life, and you know, one of them, which is, you know, I, I listened too clearly to what my mum and dad said, but, you know, I think kids in those days... Uh, respect's the wrong word, but you listen to what your parents said, and, you know, we were quite obedient. Maybe I was just an over-obedient and rather unimaginative child. But, you know, if mum said or dad said I was going to be a doctor, that's when I was going to be. So I took, you know, A-levels in maths, physics and chemistry, uh, or physics, chemistry and biology, all of which I did badly in. Right. Um, and I didn't really want to be a doctor. By that time, actually, interestingly enough, uh, later on, as I was doing A-levels or about that time, my sister got engaged to um, a medical student. My brother-in-law, uh, who's retired after 40 years as a doctor now, and I remember him taking me to the Royal London Hospital in Whitechapel, it must have been what, 50 years ago, into the autopsy room and, and asking me if I'd like to see a dead body. Well, that certainly put me off. Uh, is that when you decided you wanted to go into retail instead? <laughs> no, I didn't decide to go into retail. I just, I, I, it was, I failed my exams to get the grades. I was off the place at Guy's Hospital and I didn't get the grades. my own bat and I think this is probably because I'd learned at school to be quite independent you know I was washing my own shirts from the time I was 12 every night diligently washing my own socks you know all this sort of stuff so I was quite you know pressing my own trousers I was you know I was quite able to do all this sort of stuff um I wrote some letters to people and I wrote to about 40 companies would you consider me for a job or whatever else and I think I must have had out of the 40 or 50 I wrote 90% no replies and out of the rest I probably got 90% no we haven't got any jobs and I had one letter Have you kept it? Yeah um, From um, Mark Suspenser inviting me for an interview and after a couple of interviews I may have had three two or three certainly I got a letter saying that they offered me a job at the grand salary of £1,250 a year <laughs> and would I please turn up uh to work on the 23rd of August 1971, which I did. And what was your first job? Well, we went through the management induction course. Actually, it was uh, we were assigned to a store, so I was assigned to Oxford Store. It was very, bless my mother when she got the letter. She said, no, darling, it must mean Oxford Street. I said, uh. I said no, mum, it says Oxford. <laughs> and I went to Oxford Store, and Mr Holder was the manager, and I was there for about 10 days, but we were all put on this induction course, 40 or 5 or 50 of us, in a hotel which is... 
There's a Cromwell Hotel on Cromwell Road. It's only about 250 yards from where we're sitting today. And we were put through a whole period of stuff, store planning, about the standards of Marks and Spencer, about how to do this, a whole part of retail sort of stuff that we had to learn, you know, 101 retail. And then we were sent back to our stores after four weeks of that. We had a riot of a time, and basically we, we worked quite hard, but we got drunk as hell at night, and mm-hmm. partied like mad, and staggered into the office in the morning trying to look intelligent, um, and then I went back to Oxford. Did you get very good at folding pyjamas? I was pretty good at folding everything, actually. I'm still <laughs> extremely good at folding and paint and, uh, and ironing and whatever else today and packing. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, was it a bit like, are you being served? Was it quite... There were it some elements well, of no, it was a very modern version of that, but, you right. know, I still go around occasionally saying, you're all doing a great job. <laughs> <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you were 24, your life changed completely, didn't it? When you were, really, you'd just found your feet and you were working incredibly hard at M&S. Was the moment really when your family life went wrong? I was 26. And, um, yeah, then one day I woke up and my mother killed herself. Um, that's what you were talking about. Um, what, what happened? Well, I, in the interim between me going to boarding school, my sister, of course hadn't, bless her, so she'd been closer to the action, and the action was that my mother was quite clearly very depressed. I mean, today it probably been, you know, sorted out quite simply, rather a bit of therapy or a few simple pills, but she had a doctor who gave her more than a few simple pills. He gave her tons of pills. I've still, I found, when I was clearing my father's flat out, my mother's wallet, for a while it was doing there, I don't know, but it may have fallen behind a cupboard. Um, it was full of prescriptions for any old pills she wanted. And then I also found bags of pills at the back of the cupboard. Oh uh, my but my goodness. father never cleared them out. But, I mean, enough pills to kill, you know, kill a battalion. Mm. Um, and um, she, her, the relationship with my father had deteriorated. My father was obviously very frustrated with work. Um, I think there must have been some extra uh, curricular marital activity going on. Uh, and uh, my sister you know, and I occasionally talk about this but she knew that things went right and I knew my mother wasn't happy and I think my way of dealing with it uh, sadly and truthfully is I ignored it I sort of pretend it didn't exist Did you ever ask her that she was feeling it? Well I mean not to ask her I mean, I remember just before she died I mean, I, I saw her on the Saturday she killed herself on the Monday and she'd gone to bed with a migraine uh, migraine meant she was depressed she did have migraines, but that was, and I, I remember sitting in the she was in bed. Hi, Mum. You know, I'll call you tomorrow. Are you all right? Yeah, I'm fine, darling. Um, and that was the last time you saw her? Yeah, it was quite... It, I, I, I went to work on the Monday. I was worried about her, but no more than normal. You know, I'm mum, poor old mum. She's having a bad time. And I went to work on the Monday, and I was in the head office by that time. And on a Monday morning, it was chaos, chaotic in M&S uh, because our job is sort of, you know, as... Um, 
junior, junior trainees in merchandising was to make sure that when the directors came in at eight o'clock and they would come round at eight o'clock and it wouldn't be, you know, your middle manager, it would be, you know, Teddy Seif, who was the president, or it might be it might be one of the directors, John Rishworth or people like that coming in and saying, right, what sold last week? What didn't sell? How did you do against budget? What didn't? What was the fastest colour? What was the fastest size? Have you done about it? Have you ordered some more? And we used to get the trial line reports out, as they were called, and I would be in by 6.30 preparing the trial line reports, getting all the information, have them ready on my desk. And I thought, I must ring mum. I remember thinking going to work with mustering mum. Anyway, I didn't think about ringing mum at nine o'clock, but then she killed herself at eight thirty or so. You know. How did you find out? Well, because when the, you know I then got home that night, I just got in the door about seven o'clock, six thirty, and I was living in South London in Herne Hill, and it was my father, my mother's doctor, on the phone, James Bevan, and uh, he said, "Stuart, you know, I've got some very bad news for you. You know, your mum's not being very well. I'm afraid she's dead, and uh, you're going to have to come back into town because they lived in the West End." <laughs> And uh, my father came home and found her dead. Oh. And he said, you know, she'd, she'd, I think she'd had a bath. She'd, she'd gone into the kitchen. She uh, drank a bottle of whiskey, took a pile of pills, and she was dead on the kitchen floor. Did you see her again? When she... Dead on the kitchen floor, right. yes. So, she... so, I mean, it sounds facile in a way, but what did you feel? What was the, your reaction? <sighs> I honestly don't know. I mean, I'll tell you what I did. I do know. I kicked into, right someone's got to take control mode. Mm. My father's, you know, in, in, in a crisis on the, you know, he can't, you know, he's just sitting there. He wasn't crying, he was just stupefied, I think. He was just, mm. oh my God, what has happened? My sister, you know, clearly was very distressed. There was only me, my sister, uh, and my sister, my father, and myself, I should say. And he had to do something. Mm. And it's just silly things. I'm sure many, many people have had it over the you know, time now. That's why I quite like to plan. You know, you don't plan these things. You don't plan for death. You don't plan for crisis. You don't plan for this. You know, what do you do when suddenly you're faced with that and your father's mm. incapacitated, your sister hasn't a clue in the nicest possible way? Um, right, you know, what do I have to do? Does she have to, has, does there have to be an autopsy? Who do we have to inform? Who should I ring up? What do we do about a burial? You know, what's going to happen? Where's she going to be taken? All this sort of stuff. You start, you, and because I'd had a, a good six years training at MS, I knew exactly the sort of little mental checklist of all the things I had to get. Right. And so I never thought about it. I went straight into so going. you didn't have time to you feel know, I had upset. a terrible job trying to find a place mm. to bury her. Right. You know, were you working all the way through this as well? Did I you took get only off? two weeks, so I ever took off. I, I took two weeks off from M&S, so I just didn't go to work. I rang my boss up and said that, you know, my, uh, my mum's died. Um, throughout my career, I don't think I've ever taken more than three weeks sick leave in my life, and that was two weeks when my mum died. The rest of it, in the last 40 years, I've only taken a week other. You know, I've had, COVID would have probably knocked me out, but I wasn't working full-time with COVID, although I was working. Did you cry at any point? Uh, I don't think I did. I may have had a tear with my sister, I can't remember, but to be honest with you, I didn't feel the effects of it till quite a long time later. Mm. I mean, I did that classic thing. I stuck it in a box, tied the box up, stuck the box Mm. under the bed, and off you went. Mm. And could you talk about suicide then or not? Because mental illness was such a stigma. Well, I never did, except that whenever... I had two things. My boss wrote me quite a nice letter, my immediate boss or my boss's boss, but when I went back to work, nobody mentioned it. Now, is it because they didn't know my mother killed herself? Of course, there was still, as there is today, a huge sort of, you know, thing, oh, suicide. Oh, we don't talk about suicide. We don't talk about death. and by suicide. You know, mm. so, and I wanted to talk about it. 
So did you ever use the word suicide, or do you prefer to use killed herself? Because no, it's so, it's I so loaded. I use both. I'm not, uh, there's no, no, I would say. So, and you would find some people, but to this day, uh, you know, I think I'm very good. I, I, every time I know anybody who's bereaved, I spit it out straight away. Right. And I say, I'm really sorry to hear you know, someone's mm. died. You know, and even if it's a stranger, somebody might say, you know, in an office environment, you're about it, our mum's just died, or so and so. I always mention it. I, I think to, to put it under the carpet is a bad thing. And the number of people who they, oh, thank you for talking about my mum, or thanks for talking about this, they want to talk about it. Mm. And it should be a celebration. And even if somebody's killed themselves, you know, you should still celebrate the life. It's not, in, in a, uh, what did you get in the old days? You got excommunicated for killing yourself, didn't you? You couldn't be buried in, you couldn't be buried in consecrated ground in the old days. And do you think the attitudes to mental health have changed since then, or do you feel there Not is enough. Still, yeah. I mean, I know a lot of people try and do things, and there's some good initiatives going on, but I think you know, uh, the whole issue of suicide is looked at as being sort of you know, something we don't talk about, really. Mm. And it should be talked about, and depression. Mm. And I think, you know, as we go through, it's you know, much talked about now, but as we go through this current crisis, we're going to find an awful lot of people who are going to find that they've got mental problems as a result of being locked up, you know. Mm. Yeah. I'm lucky, I can cope with stress. Some people can't cope with stress, and we've got to look after these people. Did you worry at all that you might have inherited anything? I've thought about it a bit. I do get... Um, I went, you, you asked me, uh, did I cry when my mum died? No, I didn't cry when my mum died. But about 10 or 12 years later, I went through quite a lot of introspection about stuff and a lot of guilt. Uh, and, I, I, you know, it's easy for me to make excuses, but I'm sure that you know, the subsequent breakup of my first marriage... Uh, probably you know, was not help- it, it, it didn't help that you know, mm. the relation- there was a lot going on in my head but I never talked about it you know, I didn't go to a therapist I didn't talk to my wife about it at the time I didn't talk to anybody about it talked to myself about it I didn't talk to my sister about it you know, Churchill had what, what they call the black dog I do get the black dog but I beat myself up and I, you know, I, I just sort of say right okay you've had three days of this like, snap out of it so how does it show itself when it comes <laughs> Well, I, I don't really know, but I think it's uh, I, I, it's sort of just a sort of what's this all about? You mm. know, why am I running around at 100 miles an hour? And, and I could, you know, why have I got no energy today? Why don't I feel like doing this? Why am I putting off something I should do today or would normally have done today to tomorrow, the day after, day after, day after? Um, but I've, I, I, I'm, I'm through it. I've been very lucky, and it does make a difference. It must make a difference. If you're relatively financially secure, you know, it, it can cure a lot of ills. For one thing, you know, I can go and, you know, buy myself a bottle of wine. I can go and take myself out for a meal. I can go and book myself on a holiday. You know, if you can't do that, it's much more difficult. So mm. that's sort of therapy. You know? Maybe indulgent therapy, but it works. <laughs> mother now would be fantastically proud in that way and do you, I think, do you feel that? Smart. I think I think she'd say two things bless her she'd say darling I always knew you could do it <laughs> I'm, 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 I could almost hear her saying it um, I told you yes I told you just go and do it um, but yeah of course she'd be very proud yeah, you get, yeah. Yeah, forget about the bad bits the good bits haven't been bad and do you do you think you would have been as successful without her death, in a way? Did uh, that give you an that's extra a, that's, that's a million-dollar question. I don't know. I, mm. I mean, you just don't know. How many other things, you know, the luck element comes into it? Right person, right time, right place, you know, reaction to a particular situation, I don't know. 
I think I've been always quite a good observer of sort of events and reaction to events and I've always been um, taken the long view and I've always been pragmatic and I've always taken a rather old-fashioned view that you know it's my job to get on with my bosses and not their job to get on with me <laughs> I get so many people come to me and complain about this and I say well I'm sorry your boss is your boss so if it ain't working you better go and sort it out but it's not his problem to sort the problem out it's your problem to go and sort it out <laughs> or hers you know um, so it's about being self-starting it's about self-belief is it also empathy that you you have an emotional intelligence, perhaps? Well, I, I went... I definitely had a... a my, my, my father was not very... He had very deep feelings, all of which he wrote down in tiny, tiny writing, which I'm now having to use a magnifying glass to read. I mean, it's, you know, it's microscopic mm. and had deep feelings, but he obviously clearly kept them to his diaries, a lot of them. My mother was very empathetic... I was lucky that I went to... I was brought up, you know, very early on to remember the difference between right and wrong. I mean, I can remember, you know, I mean, my parents were... You know, they'd hate me for saying this nasty, but, but they were pretty skint. And they always looked as if they went pretty skint because, you know, my mother darned my father's socks and my father had his shoes reshod, 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 and his suits were threadbare. But, you know, my mother used to teach me the same way as she taught, taught him, the same way as he taught me. Then if you got a scrubbing brush with a bit of hot water in it and a bit of vinegar and rubbed it up against the cloth, you could get the shine out the cloth. And then if you pressed them from the inside, not the outside, you know, you could make the suit look better. All that sort of stuff still do it. Mm. Um, and, you know, um, I remember walking down the street in rugby and I can't have been more, it's before we went to Africa, so I can't have been more than uh, four. And my mum, holding my mum's hand, and we went past a greengrocer shop, so what are we, must have been 1952, three, four. And I saw this thing dangling off the side when my mother was buying a banana or something, or she was buying, and it was a grape. And I popped it into my mouth. And we're walking down the street, and my mum said to me, so I'm like, what are you eating? And I said, I'd pinched a grape. Well, she, I, was, I, I still remember this day, terrified. You've stolen that grape, we're going down to the police station, now I'm going to take you to the police station, the policeman's going to sort you out. <laughs> you know, I have never stolen a penny or anything yes. of anybody or, 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 or diddled anybody in my life. And then I mm. went to a school, which was run by the Quakers, which academically was pretty useless and we've just had I'm not a person to go to reunions or whatever else but interesting enough during the Covid crisis we've all reached around 70 or just a bit more and we've all that's 50 years since we left school and one of our bright sparks bless him sent us a note around John Dent um, saying you know would it be nice to have a Zoom together see what we've all done over the years and I think three of us have died so we've, we've done pretty well and essentially they're the careers but we've all agreed university the school was academically useless <laughs> absolutely useless but we've all agreed that it taught us some of the basics in life. And, uh, it, uh, Quakers have great, you know, they have great standards, great ethos, great this about being treating people in the way that you'd like to be treated yourself, about remembering to be nice to people on the way up because you might need them on the way down, about you know, making sure that those people who do less important jobs than you do are just as respected as, as you might want to be yourself, all that sort of stuff. And that's been an important part of my life. So I like to think that in any business I've been in, I am a people person, that I do respect the people that I work with and that they respect me. Uh, and I, I, I hate people to this day who are rude to staff who are rude to um, waitress, waitresses, who are rude to people in any way. I mean, I can get quite cross. I will actually challenge people. Mm. Are you temperamentally more like your mother or your father, do you think? 
Uh, I'll get to both, I think. Uh, I've got... My mother had quite a volatile temper, I think. I mean, she could lose it a bit. Not, not nasty, but she would just get quite... So I, but I've got... I've got quite a sharp temper, but you and I could have an argument about something. And I promise you, five minutes later, I couldn't remember what we happened. What did we argue about? Mm-hmm. But uh, yes, I can. You know, I've got. A, I wouldn't say a temper. I wouldn't say volatile. I'd just say I've got. My mother was passionate. It's a better word. It's a better word. Right. I can. I can get quite passionate about something. And my dad as well. Increasingly, my dad, as I said, he was a bit of a closed shop and he wrote it all down. And I've only, I haven't even read all the diaries yet and some of them I haven't been able to, and I've found it quite hard going. I've just had to stop reading. Did you read the bit about your mother's death in the diary? Did you, could you bear to go back to that? I read it. It was one of the first things I did when I got here. It was 1945, 49, 1949, 55, all the diaries. They're all immaculate, Mm. all written out. And one of the first ones I went to was 1970 to 76 or whatever it was. Um, One of the first things I went to in that was 1st of November, 1976. Well, actually, there was nothing in there, but there was one for about the 3rd of November. Um... But it was fairly bland, you know. Peggy killed herself last night. Was it literally? And then it doesn't start coming out for a few years, and then it floods out every, you know, anniversary or every this or that. And as he gets older, you know, even more introspection, even more introspection, right. even more introspection. And, you know, you cannot relive your parents' life. It's not my business to know what went on between my parents. Mm. I have a suspicion, but it's not my job. You can't judge them. Mm. You know, we're all driven by all, all sorts of things happen to people. I don't know, but clearly my father had a massive amount of guilt. Mm. Uh, but clearly my mother had a problem. And, you know, if you put it very simplistically... A 17-year-old meeting a 16 or a 15-year-old in 1945 or something, getting married at 17 and 18, having a child by the time you're 18 and 20, having a second child by the time you're 22. You mean, you know, having in the meantime, you know, flown a bomber. In the meantime, you know, and living then after the war, you know, in a in a in a, in a pretty damn cold environment and with no money, you know, they should never really. Have got together. Mm. It was just a circumstance, but you know they were probably pretty unsuited. I'm sure they loved each other to death. Two people meeting at 18 would that have lasted in normality? But they were forced together by circumstances, uh, and clearly that as pressure went on, I don't know. I just, you just don't know. a workaholic or was it worth it i hate the word workaholic mm. i don't really understand the word workaholic i mean you might you know, people ask me today why i'm still working and i'm very busy i work a pretty well a six-day week uh but there's two parts to that one is the workaholic bit has only come because uh, you know i'm terrified of failure and right. i'm terrified of sort of uh, of uh, of uh, being unwanted in that sort of sense and uh, having you know no earning capacity and that comes back to the you know my, you know i can remember my mother giving me a 5 pound note i must have been about i don't know 22 and me asking her if she had some money not knowing that she didn't have any money and she'd given me her last 5 pounds right. right you know i never want to be in that position and equally, you know, when my dad died, he left pretty well nothing. So I don't want to be a billionaire, but I don't want... I am scared of being financially dependent. My parents never did and would never, I'm sure, today have taken a penny off the state. 
I would never want to be dependent on anybody financially, ever. So that's why I still work. Now, the other part of it, which is truthful as well, is the only thing I've discovered I'm not bad at, I've made a few mistakes and I'm not good at everything, I'm actually quite good at work. <laughs> so, so when people say, have you got a hobby? I'm afraid I have to admit that property work's my hobby. Mm-hmm. So I'm very lucky now because I get to work in companies that I understand. I get to work with people I like. I get to work in companies where I can have a bit of fun. And by and large, I haven't made too many mistakes. I've made some big mistakes, but I haven't made too many. So that's why I'm still working. I mean, what would I do? I'd get up in the morning. I don't have a dog. I mean, I now have a wife. Um, <laughs> I don't have children because they're grown up and one lives in Australia and is locked up in Melbourne. I've got a daughter who lives in, uh, in, um, in uh, Marlborough. I don't see my grandsons as often as I'd like. I don't have any hobbies, really, because I've had to give up flying. So, actually, it works quite good fun. Hmm. And do you still feel like an outsider or do you now feel totally part of the establishment? I'm not a member of the establishment. I've never felt it and I do feel a bit of an outsider. And I, I, I still think people regard me as a bit of an odd cove why because you've got everything in a way that you know and you're in the house know. of lords and i've never been a member of a man's club right, right? i have never been a member of the establishment i don't seek i don't have a big black book of contacts that i that i refer to i don't sort of you know instigate sort of things with people to, to, to my own ends or with agendas i am completely out i i really have i keep myself to myself are you ever going to retire no. I'm very, very, very lucky. You know, I've got my health. I mean, it's been really sort of not in order of go, but, you know, actually, what do you need in life? And this is my list in no particular order. You need, you know, it's a priority for me. You need good food, good wine, <laughs> clean sheets, hot water, the roof over your head, your health, and if you're lucky, someone to love you. I've got all of the above. say now to your 26 year old self would you say it's all going to be okay or would you say keep working or i'd say don't get complacent you know it ain't you ain't done yet you know it might all disappear i mean we live in a strange place none of us know what's going to happen i mean uh, clearly you know I, 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 i'm not going to have to worry where the next meal comes from but i have what i call restless dissatisfaction which i think is a positive thing and not a negative thing it can be quite negative if you're restlessly dissatisfied too often, it can gnaw at you. You know, it's a bit like that old song, the Bonzo Dog Doo Doo Band, you know, paranoia gets to gnaw you. So you've got to be, you, 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 you've got to be, you know, you've got to understand yourself. And I'm very, very lucky that I now have got my life in balance. I know what turns me on, what turns me off. And I'm very lucky. Do you think having had something really terrible happen to you at an early age, that almost inoculates you against difficult things well, in the future? Well, you know, I came up with a phrase not long ago about, you know, COVID and whatever else. Life deals you all sorts of things. Don't always take everything as bad. Don't always think that, you know, this is where, very sadly, if I'd have been able to, I mean, how would you ever be in a position to do that? And it's very arrogant. I wish I'd given my fa- been able to give my father some career advice. Mm, right. I wish I'd been able to give my father some career advice because clearly in his diaries he needed it. So you could say adversity is an advantage occasionally. Yes. And the, how do you turn a negative into a positive? And there's lots of examples about how you can do that. And, you know, to give hope to people who feel trapped. They're not trapped. Nobody's trapped. So do you think, would you say to somebody who was, had suffered a tragedy that actually you can overcome it? 
Everybody what knows. advice would you give to somebody? Well, what's more tragic than death? I mean, you know, I know lots of things. I mean, you go through, sadly, I mean, I know lots of people who've got sick children, they've got sick uh, relatives, they've got sick husbands, they've got sick wives, they've got sickness themselves. Now, clearly, if you are incapacitated, you can't often do much about it. But even then, you see some fantastic um, examples of people who make the best of adversity. And I think that it's too easy, and I'll get criticised for this, I've no doubt, for what I call able-bodied people to find an excuse for not just being able to get on and do it. Mm. Now, clearly, if you need help, go and seek it. I do believe that we have come... Uh, uh, we, uh, there's only one person you can look to. You've got to look yourself in the mirror. Stuart Rose, thank you very much for talking to us. Can you use a bit of that? so fascinating is he takes something so personal and tragic and he analyzes it in a very professional managerial way and that sense of what you can learn from something how you can turn things around in a way he's done with companies I think that's actually how he copes with his grief is to be at one remove from it and he'd just been looking through his father's old diaries and photographs he showed us after the interview his photographs of the caravan where he grew up his parents looking happy on the beach in Africa uh, and just such a contrast with his life now Imperfect was presented by me, Rachel Sylvester. And me, Alice Thompson. It was produced by Lucy Ditchmond. The executive producer was Matt Hall. It was a Wireless Studios production. You can hear Past Imperfect on Times Radio and download the podcast from Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>